This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. Monday, January 7th, 2019, from Slate, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump has requested time from the networks, the filthy, dirty, lying networks. Thank you for your airwaves, please. These networks are in quite a position. As one TV executive told CNN media reporter Brian Stelter, quote, if we give him the time, he'll deliver a fact-free screed without rebuttal. And if we don't give him the time, he'll call every network partisan. So we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. That is the worst example of a double-edged sword I've ever heard. There is one edge. The other edge hardly has an edge. What you're saying is you'll either allow Trump to use your platform to lie to the public or else he will use his platform to lie to the public about you. Conundrum. On the one hand, we could not upend programming, but if we do that, will make all the money that we're normally going to make from revenue. But the downside is we won't let a blowhard who hates us and says so deliver a message of little civic value. Oh, what to do? This only has to be about lying, you know. You don't have to get into the it's not important enough or we denied it to Obama once. You just have to look at the lying. We ask over and over again, I've been asked this on TV. So many TV shows are used to ask this question, how can the president lie without consequence? And then you're just going to give him a forum to lie without consequence? Here's a chance to enforce a consequence. I understand. State of the Union, got to give him the speech. Big military strike, as with Syria, that has precedence. You hope he doesn't lie too much. You put on a couple of military experts. You fact check it afterwards. You hope he'll be chastened. He never will be. But to give him your air, to purposefully put him on the air, is an abdication of your responsibility. You have, if you're a uh, network, if you're a, a news network, you go into work every day to tell the truth, to rebut lies and to tell truths. So why would you want to, if you're a legitimate news network, give someone 20 minutes, a half hour, 40 minutes to do the exact opposite? I understand every once in a while an untruth slips through. You try to correct that. Sometimes you got to do the thing. I don't know if you got to do the thing, but some of you guys do do the thing where you give Jeffrey Lord a mic or you book Kellyanne Conway and you know some truths are going to slip through as a consequence of that decision. But for a news network or the news division of a broadcast network to go against why they exist makes no sense to me. Giving the airways over to a man who lies to this degree would be malpractice. It has nothing to do with partisanship. It is just factual to say that he is inherently unfactual. Look, Donald Trump has all these ways to get all his misinformation out there. He'll give you his theories about why Afghanistan was right to be invaded by the Soviets. 
and then NBC and CBS and ABC, they could do what they can do. And they know they can't prevent Fox from engaging in their form of pantomime journalism, you know, wearing the clothes of a journalist, but it's a comical costume. But there's nothing you could do about that. There's something you could do about this. And you don't even have to, if you're a network, you don't even have to get on a particularly high horse of truth and valor and commitment. You simply have to mount a pretty stunted pony of, we would rather not feed our listeners the average of 15 false claims a day. That's what the Washington Post has chronicled him uttering in 2018, an average of 15 false claims a day, as far as we can, will not be a part of that. In all honesty, which is the polar opposite of the administration's default setting, whatever network airs this speech will be a network that tells its viewers that it does not care about spreading lies. I don't even think this speech will help Donald Trump politically, but I know it will damage the networks reputationally. On the show today, I spiel about all those likable pantsuited grandmas running for president and the media who just can't see how likable they are. And let me tell you about a live event that I'm doing in Brooklyn on Saturday. I'll be the host of a kind of game show. It's based on an old Comedy Central show called Beat the Geeks. We have past just guests and friends of the show like Adam Davidson, Dana Stevens, Jody Avergan, Brooke Gladstone coming by. And you in the audience in Union Hall in Brooklyn this Saturday, 730, will get a chance to do intellectual battle with them. Go to unionhallny.com for tickets. But first, Greg Sargent is a chronicler of Trump's media strategy, voting fairness, and political science in general. He writes the Washington Post Plumline blog, and he joins me to talk about his new book, An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Misinformation and Thunderdome Politics. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Will the end of our democracy come as per the old line from, I think it was Fitzgerald, slowly, then all at once? I don't know. That's what a lot of the experts are saying. Of course, that is a way to sell books. It does comport with what I've been noticing in the news, trends in our country and throughout the world. An Uncivil War is the name of the new book by Washington Post columnist Greg Sargent, taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics. If you're not reading Sargent's Plumline blog, I'd say that, The Monkey Cage, couple 538 columns are absolutely essential reading to understand the ins and outs of what's going on with elections and democracy in general. Hello, Greg. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Now, I know this is against the backdrop of, I mean, right there in the title, Trumpian. If you want to sell books, it's got to say Trumpian. It's not that it's not Trumpian, but most of the trends that you're talking about are independent of Donald Trump, I would say. That's right. And, and the reason, you know, I talked about Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics is, is I should be clear, you know, the, one of the main themes of the book is that it required a figure as openly um, – 
contemptuous of democracy as Trump to focus everyone's attention on all this. Yeah, he says the quiet part out loud. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and so all of a sudden there's this outpouring of concern about our political system. Um, and it took Trump to focus everyone on, 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 on those problems. But they long predate Trump and they'll long outlast him. And so what I write about in the book is can we figure out some way of kind of capturing this pro-democracy energy that Trump has unleashed so that we have it around to build on after he's gone. Let's just talk about voter suppression for a little while. Uh, predates Trump. Trump wouldn't have been uh, clever enough to institute it, but institute it, it has been, and it really is affecting the vote. For instance, uh, voter IDs. Many states have them, but there are about 10 states with really strict ID laws. And what do these 10 states have in common? Uh, generally, what the... Um designators of, of voter ID laws as strict mean by that is that, okay, you've got to have an ID to vote, but if you don't, you have to go through hoops to get your vote counted. And that's where the strictness comes in. You can have voter ID laws that are not strict and, and, and as a result are, are seen as basically acceptable by voting rights advocates in places like the, the Brennan Center. It's hard to say in some sort of big picture sense what the impact of it is. But what we do know is that there are clear examples of it actually disenfranchising large numbers of people. But also, I should add, when it's put into place with the deliberate intent of disenfranchising in a targeted way, that's where it really becomes problematic and undemocratic. The motives are the problem, right? That's what makes it fundamentally undemocratic. You can say maybe, okay, it wouldn't, it didn't make a difference in this one case. Maybe it might have made a difference in this other case. But it's it's bad for our politics for uh, for um, for politicians to be trying to suppress the votes of the opposition. I think we need to have that as our starting point. So uh, as I look at the map of places with voter ID laws and strict ID laws and also places with uh, very liberal open voting, if you look at the open voting states and the early voting and mail-in voting and ways that make voting easier, it's kind of funny. Some of those some of those are the places we know and would expect it, fairly liberal enclaves. A lot of them aren't. New York couldn't be worse. But right. a lot of these states are also Republican controlled in both houses of the legislature and the governorship, you see, have a lot of states in the interior Midwest that are really open, but what they are is almost entirely white. And I look at it and I say, to get open voting, which isn't just the opposite of strict ID, to get to a place that encourages people to vote, you have to either have uh, liberal or democratic control of the legislature or something like under 5% black population? <laughs> well, you know, the, the funny thing about that is, and, and this, it, it does complicate the picture, and, and you're right to note that, you know, you do have some red states w which have, you know, fairly decent early voting regimes and mm -hmm. stuff. The thing about that is that you can sort of have, simultaneously have early voting that's good for everyone, but also targeted voter ID that tries to disenfranchise some. It's the kind of thing where these things just keep flaring up. One thing that was really sort of striking to me um, about this is having talked to uh, voting rights lawyers and, and so forth, they constantly talk about it as this, this crush of incoming. Right, no matter how many times they beat down, you know, one uh, voter suppression measure here, another one pops up there. In plenty of cases, they'll defeat a voter suppression 
uh, measure in court and then the Republican legislature will come back and have tweaked it in subtle ways to get it past the courts next time and it's a little less suppressive but it's still somewhat suppressive. It's just this constant crush of of one measure after another and one place after another and then all of a sudden – as you say, in places where elections haven't been close but the demographics are starting to move the, the uh, electorate into a place where Democrats can win statewide, all of a sudden you see, lo and behold, the measures pop up there again and, and they have an effect. Okay. I totally think that, of course, we should be as democratic as possible and make it easier to vote. And the the evidence for voter fraud is so vanishingly small, it's hard to even come up with the analogies of how often voter fraud happens. Like you can't even liken it to lightning strikes on one person, right? It's like lightning strikes while you're in the bathtub. That's uh, That's how often voter fraud happens. But here's the thing. I do think that there are lots of places or lots of instances where it might seem like voter suppression. You know, these long lines at the polls in black parts of Georgia. But I live in New York City, and there were long lines at the polls, even though a Democratic victory was a foregone conclusion. And you look at Broward County, which is Democratic-controlled, and there weren't long lines at the polls, but there was just sheer incompetence. It does seem to me that incompetence is a pretty decent explanation for why a lot of voting is, uh, is, is hard to accomplish. And the second thing is, even if we had pick whichever state that you think is the top in class, even if America ran all of its voting by that state, it really wouldn't change things by more than two or three percent, I don't think. Right. I think that's true. And and, and it's a major problem that we have such a, a slipshod and patchwork election system across the country. And incompetence is a big part of it. The lack of national standards is another. And we really could make the choice to do better here. I mean, this is just absurd. One proposal that I I like a lot is to sort of create a national standard for voting line lengths that are considered acceptable or early voting periods. Those types of things which go to the core of the convenience of, of, of of the franchise, you could see having national standards for in a way that would also preserve plenty of independence for the states to set other aspects of their election rules. And I don't see why we can't do better in getting that balance right. What do you make of the fact that for all the efforts that's put into uh, voter suppression, let's just call it that, for all the evidence that without it, Andrew Gillum might have beaten Ron DeSantis in Florida, enfranchising felons passed rather easily. Why is it that the same forces who work the system to ensure that Republicans have a slight advantage in terms of suppression didn't do everything to fight a law that could totally shift the demographics and, you know, turn that into a democratic state? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's a good one. And I think the larger point raised by it is that we can win sometimes, right? You know, Americans tend to support uh, pro-democracy reforms, things like nonpartisan redistricting commissions, uh, opening up the vote to felons, that type of thing tends to poll really well, as do other types of pro-democracy reforms. In fact, that's one of the big themes of this book is that we can't get complacent. You know, there's a tendency for Democrats to decide that once they've won, everything's just fine. 
Mm-hmm. That happened in 2008 with Obama and, and two years later they lost uh, state legislatures across the country and the result of that was a locked-in gerrymandering scheme by Republicans that, that created a fortress in the House that was impregnable. Right, but the complacency was in terms of winning the election in 2010. Was there complacency, to your knowledge? Was there, was there legislation about shoring up and protecting voting that just was ignored or went by the wayside when Obama had a chance and had control of both houses of the legislature? That Not really. What I mean by that is that Democrats were complacent in the sense that they didn't really recognize that if Republicans could pull off a route on the state level in 2010, they could do a national uh, redistricting strategy and put that in place in a way that would really make it almost impossible for Democrats to win back the House. I tell the story in the book of the of the Republican operatives who actually put that scheme in place and recognized right after Obama won. Remember, when Obama won in 2008, pundits were saying the Republican Party was dead. Yeah. People forget that yeah. today. Yeah, yeah, and, the cover of Time magazine with Reagan crying, right? Oh, yeah, I had <laughs> forgotten that, but that does sound right. Yeah. Um, it's really important to go back to 2010 for a minute. Mm-hmm. There were a confluence of different things that came together that enabled the Republican Party to really pull off a pretty amazing coup, Right. One was that the country was suffering from the worst financial crash aftermath in, in, in many decades, which all but ensured a larger-than-usual backlash in the first midterm of Obama's term, right? Uh, the second was that that 2010 election just happened to coincide with the decentennial, the, the, uh, the census coming out. Uh, which ensured that if Republicans could pull off a route, they, they'd have their strategy in place to redraw all these maps across the country. And third, the technology of map drawing was really getting quite sophisticated at that point. And, and they all figured that the, – the, the Republicans figured out that th- that confluence of events could actually create a fortress of resistance to the Obama presidency. And, and by the way, the other piece of this is Obama won – his victory was powered by a, an electorate of unprecedented racial diversity, and I think Republicans recognized a, a serious demographic long-term threat to their survival, and so that is another thing that motivated a lot of this stuff. The bottom line is that they recognized the structural uh, opportunity to kind of rig the rules in their favor for a very long time, and Democrats didn't recognize that that could happen. So on my show, I've talked about a couple tripwires built into the Constitution, undemocratic tripwires, consciously, purposefully undemocratic. The Electoral College is one. Two senators from every state is another. And then if you look at the appointment of judges, I just mentioned that because we have a situation where uh, you could argue that the majority of judges on the Supreme Court were appointed by presidents who didn't even win the popular vote. So that's another factor. Um is the Constitution just flawed or are we just seeing three, uh, two or three things happening at once to make the undemocratic be the rule of thumb rather than the democratic? Well, I think we all agree that the Constitution is imperfect. Um, you know, I, I just want to say one thing about what you brought up there about the, about the Supreme Court. There's, there's really a, a nightmare scenario lurking in the future that I think we need to focus on and that's – you could see this conservative majority not being willing to strike down – extremely egregious voter suppression efforts that come along in the future. And believe me, there will be some more of these. I argue in the book for nonpartisan redistricting commissions as a way to replace 
uh, the gerrymandering process, and we saw some of those win in 2018. I think three of them um, won. But it's very plausible that the court could strike down that type of commission as unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And that could even frustrate yet another new way of neutralizing gerrymandering. So we could really have a, a court that is um, a majority of justices are appointed by presidents who won, didn't win the popular vote to ascend to the White House, who are making it tougher and tougher to fight back against Republican counter-majoritarian tactics. And that's that's really a terrible scenario, I think, in terms of confidence in the system and also the, the, the democratic nature of it. The name of the book is An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. The author is the writer of the Washington Post's Plumline blog, Greg Sargent. Greg, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Is Elizabeth Warren likable? I like her. So, yeah, I guess she's likable. Okay, end of issue. I mean, this is how the word likable works, right? Is the muffin edible? I ate it. I digested it. Went fine. Therefore, it's edible. Is the water potable? Pierre drank it. He seems fine. The idea of likability is laughable. <laughs> Which actually brings me to the counterpoint of is she likable? Elizabeth Warren isn't likable because there's no such thing as likability. It's a magic trick. It means nothing. Electable is in a similar category. So is elite. So good night. We learned a lot. The spiel's done early today. And that's it for the... No, wait, wait, wait. It's not it for today's show. We can't let it go because Elizabeth Warren wasn't just assailed for her likability liability. She was compared to Hillary Clinton in a Politico story... Warren battles the ghosts of Hillary. This story made it all the way to Hillary Clinton, who weighed in today on the topic. I know many of you and can attest as to how smart, determined, effective, and dare I say, likable you all are. But what about this idea that because of... Elizabeth Warren's lack of agility in the field of likability, that what happened to Hillary could happen to her. I mean, think about that. If that were to be visited upon Elizabeth Warren, she'd, she'd win six of the first seven primaries. She'd have a thousand more delegates than her next closest opponent. She'd win the popular vote. That'd be terrible, huh? If that's true, Beto's going to look for some of that unlikability elixir. You know, this was one of those articles that was useful just so all smart people could say how dumb it was. It was a little like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez dancing, but without those visuals. So let me, let me separate myself from the pack a little and do something a little bit different than say, how dare you ask and you're being sexist. Though, not to specifically say that Elizabeth Warren's unlikable or even that Hillary Clinton is. Dumb word, I want to think about it in a different way. I think Hillary Clinton was, in fact, in the words of an extremely likable dude, likable enough. Who knows? Who cares? She had better policy positions than everyone she faced in 2016. Bernie, Jim Webb, Martin O'Malley, and of course, Donald Trump. I don't care about a candidate's ability to inspire or to use the power of persuasion. A lot of people do. A lot of high-minded pundits do. What about the ability to 
inspire a crowd, to get people behind you. You know, I think competent governance is persuasive. I think not getting into great recessions is persuasive. I think stupid wars and shutdowns over fits of peak, that's inspiring in a way on the negative side. Grow the economy, get people health care. You know what? Maybe build a new road or bridge or a goddamn airport that works well. You know what I'll do? I will take an efficient light rail to a non-third world transportation hub, and I'll listen to the St. Crispin's Day speech mashed up with Norman Dale from Hoosiers, and I'll get all my inspiration as I go about my competent life as funded and supplied by the government. Anyway, Hillary Clinton was a good candidate, and I'm not going to say that she was unlikable, but she did have some deficit of charisma. Okay, it's unfair, it's uncool, it's sexist. Well, it wasn't just me saying this. It was Hillary Clinton saying this. I am not a natural politician, in case you haven't noticed, like my husband or President Obama. So Hillary Clinton was probably speaking about her skills as a speaker. And as always, she is a keen observer. If what we mean by likable or what Hillary was saying, natural, if it has to do with how good you are as a communicator, how much you resonate with an audience, there's some legitimacy to that. And I also do think Elizabeth Warren is better than Hillary Clinton connecting with an audience. Here are the two of them saying similar things. First, here's a clip of Warren at her kickoff speech in Iowa this last weekend. Pretty much all of my adult career has been spent around one central question, and that is, what's happening to working families in America? Why has America's middle class been hollowed out? What's happening to opportunity in this country? Why is the path so rocky for so many people and so much rockier for people of color? Why has this happened in America? All right, that's pretty good. And I'm not going to play you something disastrous, but contrast it with Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail in 2016. Now, those challenges emerged long before the Great Recession, and they have persisted through our recovery. There is too much inequality, too little upward mobility. It is just too hard to get ahead today. But there are common sense things that your government could do that would give Americans more opportunities to succeed. Why don't we do it? Because powerful special interests and the tendency to put ideology ahead of political progress have led to gridlock in Congress. You know, when Hillary talks, it sounds like a speech. It doesn't sound like a story. Hillary Clinton's supposed unlikability was at least not helped by the fact that the forum in which most people had to evaluate her, which was watching her give a speech, wasn't a great forum for her. And the other forum that they had, which was answering questions in a press conference, was even worse. And she was pretty stilted in a lot of one-on-one interviews. I'm not even talking about likability. It's inherently unfair. But let's talk a little bit about the word charisma. It's not terribly more objective than likability, but charisma does seem to have some elements that aren't entirely a proxy for the gut reaction of the audience. There are, we should, if we're going to talk about sexism, there are aspects of charisma that are readily available for men, but not for women. You got friendly drunk guy charisma. Is that really a kind of charisma a woman can have? You got lovable slob charisma. 
Same thing. You got balled up curmudgeon charisma. Very hard for a woman to affect that form of charisma. Hardly ever see a woman have this form of charisma, which is the anti-charisma charisma. Bernie Sanders has that. Jeremy Corbyn has that. I can't think of a woman who has anti-charisma charisma, mostly the realm of men like Arnor or Gondor, which brings me to Dungeons and Dragons. When I played as a kid, there were a bunch of traits you could have, strength, wisdom, intelligence, and one was charisma. And when they went to define it, they said it was partly physical attractiveness, but also a a part that's hard to define. So I think that physical attractiveness, if it's acknowledged to be a part, comes into play. It is easier for a man, I think society has acknowledged this, unfairly though it is, it is easier for a man in his 50s or 60s or 70s to be seen as physically attractive than it is for a woman of those ages to be seen as such. Gloria Steinem has made the observation that men gain social status as they age and women lose it, and how we judge looks unfairly has something to do with that. Now, with all that said, what we're establishing here is that women politicians certainly can be charismatic, and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is, but it's probably a lot harder for a smart woman in her 70s to have a form of charisma than even a lunk-headed man in his 30s through 70s. Let's admit that. But let's also admit that it's legitimate for a person who is an animal on the planet Earth who is governed by both higher and lower order modes of thinking to conclude, you know what? I just don't like the cut of his jib or her jib. And they're not always wrong. A voter can decide there's something about this guy or woman I don't like. Voters decided that about Ted Cruz, gave him the heebie-jeebies. Phil Graham was the leading fundraiser in the 1996 Republican primary. He went nowhere because a lot of voters realized what a local publication was talking about when they described Phil Graham as having, quote, the round, wizened face of a snapping turtle. There will be four female candidates in this race, and three will lose, at least three will lose, will likability? Will that millstone be hung around the neck of the other three? I personally don't think it was unlikability that sunk Hillary. If you like a candidate, you find a way to cast their affect positively. For Trump voters, he wasn't an ignorant joke. He was a bold truth teller. For fans of Hillary, you didn't have to acknowledge and fight against, oh my God, she's so likable. You just had to tell yourself something like this, what Tina Fey told us in 2008. Bitches get stuff done. That's why Catholic schools use nuns as teachers and not priests. Those those nuns are mean old clams and they sleep on cots and they're allowed to hit you. And at the end of the school year, you hated those bitches, but you knew the capital of Vermont. So I'm saying it's not too late, Texas and Ohio. Get on board. Bitch is the new black. All right. So see there, unlikability is the new competence. That was probably played more for humor than accuracy. But it does say that having voters think you're a swell lady or fella is beside the point. You know who they will like? They will like the man or woman. Democratic voters will like the man or woman who beats Trump. Likeable? That will be grounds to be worshipped. And that's it for today's show. What next? A new podcast from Slate has requested time from the gist to air their show in this space. It's it's how not to be pre-exhausted by the 2020 elections with guest Jamel Bowie. That request has been denied by producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. 
T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She points out that Mary Harris, host of What's Next, has yet to lie on her podcast. But, you know, the podcast is a day old. It will be in your feed at 5 a.m. if you allow it to be. The gist. Look, the last time a network gave Donald Trump an uninterrupted hour to do whatever he wanted, he made the decision that Joan Rivers was a better apprentice than Annie Duke. Ridiculous. Oopur depur duperu. And thanks for listening.